Hello and welcome back to Sharp Tech. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Thompson. Ben, how you doing? Uh, conflicted, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Why conflicted? Well, on one hand, the Packers beat the Cowboys, which is always a source of joy. You know, one of the longest-running wounds in my sports psyche are the mm. 90s Cowboys just beating the Packers again and again. So any Packers victory over the Cowboys is sweet. But unfortunately, we had the modern-day Cowboy in F1 just pull <laughs> off a terrible move, and somehow the other guy gets penalized. It's ridiculous. Oh, just, a ter- just a very conflicting sporting sporting morning for me. Well, listen, Ben, I'm struggling too. All these years... I've been looking to Sam Bankman-Fried as a guiding light, a beacon, an example of what a businessman can be when he actually feels a responsibility to improve the world. And over the last couple of days, I've just been reading these exposés about my hero, and it just doesn't feel real, you know? Not SBF. He was one of the good ones. So... I, I I am feeling emotional tonight, too. We're going to get through this together for the next hour. I think this is where we need video uh, for this <laughs> section so people can see the absurd look on your face as you are staying there. I'm not sure if we have enough episodes in the bag for people to pick up on your sarcasm, although maybe it is pretty obvious. Oh, a shit-eating grin. That's absolutely right. Yes. Well, we're starting with an absolute mess and what is one of the biggest tech stories of the year. And I should say at the outset, anyone who's looking to understand the mechanics of what happened with Alameda Research and FTX, go check out the most recent episode of Dithering. Ben provided an excellent explainer. And if you're not subscribed to Dithering, there's a link in your show notes that'll allow you to download a couple clicks. Very easy. And it was a great episode. And I feel like I understand what happened in part because of your explanation and in part because it's really not much more complicated than like a garden variety Ponzi scheme. But or is is it is it a Ponzi scheme or is it just like straight up fraud? Right. I mean, I, I think like like a Ponzi scheme, the whole idea is as long as you sort of hand it off to the next guy, like you have to keep bringing in new people, then it'll stay afloat. In this case, basically, they said. Our customer assets are in their own box. They're over there. They're safe. And in reality, they were taking the customer assets and giving them to Alameda Research, which, by the way, I want to compliment you in your pronunciation because there's two <laughs> big problems with the dithering episode. Number one, I kept saying Alameda. It's actually Alameda. Okay. Um, and number two, I didn't make an offhanded comment that was wrong, which we'll, we'll actually get to in a moment. Um but yeah, it's actually kind of straightforward. The other, so just long short, the, like crypto sort of blew up over the summer. Alameda and and SBF, uh, Sam Baker Freed, was just going around buying all these companies that went defunct. In retrospect, it seems clear that Alameda also blew up. They were buying companies to cover up for their losses and in the process taking a whole bunch of customer money out of FTX, their companion sort of, or, or their SBF sort of exchange, give it to Alameda to cover this. And they were papering it over by using FTX's coin, like mm-hmm. they made this big transfer. 
and then uh, Binance basically induced a run on that coin, which exposed that Almeida basically didn't have any, didn't have any real assets to cover all this money that they were supposed to give back to FTX. So um, it, it's just fraud. Like, it's kind of not really complicated. They weren't supposed to take customer money to do that, and they did. And the other question here is, how legitimate actually was Alameda and FTX all along, right? Like, I talk about in that story, the founding story of SBF is doing this kimchi trade, which always seemed a bit weird. Why was he the one that could figure it out and no one else could? And, like, it's so fraudulent what went on. And the guy is just lying constantly. He was on Twitter earlier last week saying everything's covered with assets that tweet had to be deleted within 24 hours when they went belly up then he comes out and he apologizes like oh we have xyz in there also turned out to be a lie then there's suddenly a quote-unquote hack of ftx where all this money's <laughs> disappearing so like everything he says appears to be a lie so why should we believe the origin story either it's like almost anything's believable at this point well, and there's there are a number of layers to this story, too, where there's personal rivalries with the Binance guy and there's this lobbying effort that was going on in Washington and Sam Bankman fried apparently pushing for stricter crypto regulation that a lot of people in crypto didn't like. Well, also his parents being very politically connected. His mom runs this 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 Democratic pack like he contributed a massive donor to the Biden campaign. He was the second largest Democratic donor in this election. It's just really, the whole thing is weird. And Mm -hmm. I agree, it's a huge story. I honestly feel like it it hasn't gotten, it's been all over the tech press for sure. But I I don't know, do you feel like that this is, it feels like there should be way more coverage of what's going on here? Because there are so, like basically everything about FTX and Alameda Research and Sam Baker Freed that we know from the last six months appears to all be a lie. And so I'm pretty interested about the 18 months before then, the 24 months before then. Is that all a lie as well? It's entirely possible. And regardless of the first 18 months, it is pretty clear that there have been, it certainly appears to have been like a pattern of bald face lies in the media and in response right. I mean, to this It's not like some crash. complicated Ponzi scheme. It's, like, it's, it's just literally lying. Yes. <laughs> like- <laughs> and I think it would become a bigger story and penetrate the mainstream more than it has if more people understood exactly what he was lying about. I think some of this is still so arcane to normies of the world that it's hard to to really move the needle But that's why I'm curious tonight, because I I think one of the aspects of this story that will make it one of the biggest stories of the year, the impact this could have on the crypto space more generally, on the way our government approaches crypto regulation. And I understand the mechanics of what Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX were involved in and why it was egregiously illegal, but the next steps here, I'm a little bit lost. Like, what could this mean for everyone else? And and what are you going to be watching for over the next few weeks and months as this unfolds? Well, I think first and foremost, I would like to understand everything about Alameda and Sam Bakeman fried and uh, FTX, like from the beginning. There's got to be a lot of things to sort of dig into. Like, was the kimchi trade actually legitimate? Like, where did this guy... Because, I mean, it only, like, it's 
it's like FTX only started in 2019. Like, how did that go from zero to 25, 30 billion when they came well behind other exchanges? Like, it's just the whole thing in retrospect all seems very weird once you sort of uh, unwrap it. And so that that's that's what I'd like to see first and foremost. As far as the regu- regulatory bid, this is a little bit of a complicated question, and this is where I got some stuff wrong on dithering. So on dithering, I talked about uh, – I, I made a reference to DeFi, which is decentralized finance. And I insinuated, I might have said straight out. It, it, it was just a throwaway line. I, I, I definitely messed it up that FTX or insinuated FTX was DeFi. It's not DeFi. It's centralized. It was a centralized sort of exchange. Decentralized finance is where there's like you, you can do – the financial stuff on the blockchain, and there is no central entity. There's like these algorithmic things. There's, there's things called Uniswaps that are market makers, but it's all it's all code. It's, it's and there is no centralized sort of thing. And the big question I think going forward is: there's FTX and FTX US. FTX was where you could do all like the margin trading and the lending and stuff, in part because there is no clear regulatory framework in the US, but they will definitely get you in trouble if you do stuff they don't like. And so. Basically, the regulatory environment in the U.S. is kind of unclear, and that's a reason why a lot of the more sort of extravagant stuff uh, was sort of offshore. And so, number one, ideally, there would be a much clearer regulatory framework in the U.S. so that exchanges could be more full-featured sort of in the U.S. uh, broadly. That's sort of number one. Okay. Number two is – and that's also – there's a question how much reach does the U.S. have over FTX? Although FTX U.S. ended up going bankrupt, which, by the way, was another why Bankman-Fried told. He said, oh, this FTX U.S. is not not affected. Well, then why is it going bankrupt? Uh, (laughs) You know, is a – reasonable question one would think to ask and um and so the question is number one there's for sure probably gonna be regulation of, around this sort of stuff is it going to completely strangle the the idea very possible and then by extension what impact will that have on the decentralized sort of finance area like the whole challenge of decentralized finance is there is no obvious nexus to regulate and so do you like so do you just sort of try to smush the whole thing by saying you have to trace Every single transaction. Well, who does the tracing of the transactions? Like the, the the just the paperwork could literally smother the whole thing, and that's where FTX does affect DeFi, even though FTX is not DeFi per se. Sorry, that was a whole lot of uh, mush. No, <laughs> no, no. it's going to be very difficult because it's going to be super easy to get lost in the weeds on some of this stuff. But as a very basic question, how is our regulatory framework unclear? As we sit here today, like what what exactly is the ambiguity that's driving all this stuff offshore? Well, there's no real clear rules around this in the U.S., but there have been enforcement actions in the U.S. And so it's kind of like this. You don't want to cross the line, but you don't know where the line is. And so the and I think this is something that Coinbase in particular has been very frustrated about because they would lose a lot of business to entities like Binance or FTX because they're a U.S. company, U.S. listed on the stock market. They need to not sort of go over the line. They would ideally fully operate within the lines, but they don't know what the lines are. And Mm -hmm. so that's sort of the frustration, I think, on that side. A reasonable person, I think, could come back after this and say, well, maybe the whole thing should be smushed completely. Uh, And and that's definitely going to be an attitude about this. But you know, th- this is where the DeFi part gets really interesting because, again, it's it. No one is in charge. It, it it is fully sort of decentralized. One of the issues in crypto that I've I wrote about this at the beginning of this year in the context of OpenSea and like the NFT marketplace is 
a lot of the rhetoric and narrative around crypto was a lot like the rhetoric narrative around the internet, which is that it's decentralized. Anyone can go out there, X, Y, Z. And and two, from a technical perspective, that is true. The the thing on the internet, though, and this has been the long-running sort of theme on Stratechery, when there's no friction, it becomes very challenging for users to navigate. And companies that solve that, in the case of the internet, that solve discovery, that help you find all the stuff on the internet, they actually become tremendously powerful and they become a centralized entity. But that centralized entity isn't because they're controlling stuff. It's because that's where all the customers are. And so Mm. Google is dominant on the internet without directly controlling the internet. They're dominant because consumers go there to help figure out the internet. And so in the case of NFTs, that was OpenSea. It's like, look, NFTs in theory are this completely open sort of marketplace, but in reality, OpenSea is totally dominant. And I think that's an issue with crypto generally. Like, yes, in theory, stuff being on the blockchain means anyone can come in and and deal in those assets, but the companies that actually accrue power are the ones that make it easy for customers. And in the case of FTX, by making it easy, that meant you went to FTX and FTX is the one that actually had your coin, actually had your, 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 assets and uh and very now, bad luck for the people who did that <laughs> and um, now they don't have your assets anymore the assets are somewhere um which is another question to figure out where did all the money go it's 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 going to be uh interesting to trace that well to that point we got this question from shweta and he he said ftx positioning on crypto is that they are all decentralized and this may be true for networks but as you just said user point of access is centralized so does the decentralized model ever actually manifest? Like, can this ever actually work was his question. Yeah, it's, it's very, very skeptical, right? I mean, because user, the user interface matters. Convenience matters. It has, like, for these markets to be useful, they need to get scale. But scale requires increased convenience, particularly when you get to the marginal customer. And I think one of the fundamental paradoxes facing crypto all along has been you want to get a lot of people on it, but you get a lot of people on it by making it easy and accessible. But if you make it easy and accessible, that requires a centralized entity. Mm-hmm. And so the theory of Bitcoin, like Bitcoin is in many respects, the most decentralized, right? Like, like at the end of the day, it's pretty straightforward and there's lots of exchanges for one, but also there's lots of stuff around the edges to help you manage it yourself. But then you're like, well, how many consumers actually really do want to do the modern equivalent of like putting money under the mattress by having their own sort of hardware wallets. Their that, wallet, you know, yeah. Yeah. They have to figure out where it is. And you hear the horror stories of someone throwing a hard drive away and they lost you know, millions of dollars or whatever it might be. It's a real fundamental paradox and challenge with crypto. And this is one of those things where my position on crypto is I've never written really about the financial aspects because I've had a couple issues with it. One is at the end of the day, like wall street at the end is ultimately about trading on top of real assets, whether Mm -hmm. that be, you know, whether that be stocks or real estate and that can go sideways as we saw in the financial crisis, right? Where you, you just got too abstracted away and lost touch with the underlying assets, which when they lost value, Suddenly, it filtered through the system. Everyone's getting a crash course about counterparty risk, which, you know, and I I think I wrote about this before. Like, look, it doesn't matter that your loan is like collateralized 3x. If your counterparty goes bankrupt, (laughs) you're screwed. Right. 3x of zero. (laughs) Yeah. And so 
the finance bit, like you can understand why the finance bit was a big thing because this is like money. The scarcity is interesting. My interest has always been on blockchain as a product, particularly like the portability, right? The idea, you know, I think about this with my customers being able to carry my subscribers to different platforms. But even then, when I've articulated what this vision would look like, I've always assumed in practice, there's going to be a centralized entity that is a service that anyone can access and see what, you know, what assets does this customer have? What entitlements do they have? And yeah, it's undergirded by a blockchain, but that blockchain allows someone else to write, to create a different centralized service on top of that data. It's not actually like the service itself. And the user experience bit has always been, has always been a challenge. And I think we're seeing that here. I mean, at the end of the day, the reason why so many people got screwed by FTX is because this stuff's hard to use and using an exchange is easier. But by oh, using yeah. an exchange, you give up control and you're in an unrelated place where someone can lie through their teeth and you're screwed. Well, it, it's not much different than regular people being told to go use Mastodon. Like it's just a non-starter for people because it's so confusing and a place like Twitter is always going to have just a massive advantage over that because they make it so easy. And from what I understand, that's true of Coinbase and was true of FTX. But I think now the question is, all right, so if there are going to be these centralized resources that people use to trade, how do you regulate them and prevent something like this? And and one of the questions I have is like, I, I don't know that we would need new laws to prevent something like this at FTX. Like, I mean, SPF right. it was, it, it was, was guard breaking the fraud. law. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, I, I, I don't know. No, like, I, I, I'm sh- pretty positive there's plenty of evidence to put him in prison for a very long time just based on the laws that we have. Like, it, it's it's straight up fraud. Like, it's wire fraud. You do whatever you want to do. At the end of the day, it's not that complicated. Like, like it, it's so much of the stuff around it is interesting, right? Your, so I actually think the most interesting bit in many respects was your sarcastic bit at the beginning. One of the great ironies of this whole thing is the guy who was the good guy in this whole thing was uh, CZ of, of Binance, right? Like who, who everyone was like a little skeptical of. And he's like, you know, he's ruthless and, you know, all these sorts of things. Ch- Changpeng Zhao was, Zhao was his name. But like ruthless is in some respects it's better honest. Or, <laughs> than, being, yeah, than being a liar, right? Being honestly or whatever it might be. And to me, that's one of the biggest wake-up calls here. You've had this in the broad strokes. You've had this sort of tech backlash or, you know, a lot of mockery of changing the world, X, Y, Z. And it's interesting that in this case, the one who did want to change the world, you know, in a way that was like approved by the media and sort of the commentary and the one who got a magazine cover darling look we're not gonna do it on this show but you could go back over the last year and a half of media and cherry pick all kinds of overwrought language describing sam bankman freed his mission his ambitions over the long term and it would be too mean to those writers, but like it would be a very entertaining coffee table book would it be i mean this is i've it's funny because, um, you know, I never wrote about Theranos and, and Holmes. It just never, it never added up for me. And I never wrote about Bankman Freed for the same reason. I it, like, it just, as I put it on dithering, one of the things that bugged me is his 
political actions weren't very creative in my mind. It was just like, it seemed very sort of, okay, very obvious sort of things to do. Yeah, I was being this effective altruism thing, but that that's like been, you know, it's it's a pretty straightforward utilitarian sort of argument, and he supported bog standard sort of democratic politicians. And it's like there was this disconnect between this person who's being hailed as very innovative and thinking differently versus like the way it actually manifested in in his outcomes, which seemed just like by the line democratic. Which, which again, th- th- I'm not judging him because there were democratic moves. I'm saying they were so uncreative. It, it always seemed weird to me. And so I, I don't know. I just I, I wasn't. I by no means was writing about or alleging fraud or thought any of this was the case. That's not yeah. what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying he as a character always struck me. It as, didn't quite add up. Yeah, there was something that wasn't right. Yeah, and. uh and now, of course, you know, it's easy to look back in retrospect, but I think I talk a lot about the temptation of sort of confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. And one of the risks and dangers, I think, of politicizing everything and saying that companies need to be about more than making money or journalists need to be about more than just asserting facts is the opportunity, number one, for confirmation bias becomes very large. And number two, the internal justification for lying and fraud becomes very large as well. I mean, if the ends justify the means, then like you're on the road to perdition. Yeah, well, and that's my read on what happened here without having any real basis in fact. But as I speculate, I don't think that Bankman Freed was pursuing all of that altruism and all of the political donations as a way to like proactively launder this ongoing fraud that he was conducting. I think he probably really believed that he was going to make the world a better place and, and believed in all those missions. And then he became so high on his own supply that he was able to justify shuffling the deck chairs at Alameda Research and FTX and taking customer funds and convincing himself that in the long run, it would be best for everybody. And that's just like a very typical human blind spot, particularly when you're surrounded by people telling you how amazing and revolutionary you are. Like, it's not surprising to me that he could convince himself to to try to pull something like this off, given his own self-regard. Yeah, I, I think that is the correct read, which I agree with. I do, I would really like to see some investigation into, like, like I, I, I think, think that, there's going to be that an was my interpretation, dithering, right? Like he was, he was generally uh, a fine operator that created Alameda Research to solve this arbitrage trade. Then, when the arbitrage closed, they needed something to do. Uh, they start FTX. Alameda is a market maker on FTX, and then it all goes sideways this summer. And then he, he commits fraud, and then tries to fix it, and then it gets worse and worse. Honestly, the fraud is so bald, and the lying is so consistent. I, I do question everything. I, 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 I do. I don't know. I, I, again, I don't want to be conspiracy Benier. I'm usually the one. You know, you're the conspiracy guy. But it does make me question absolutely everything about about this whole thing. Yeah. And, you know, for anyone keeping score at home, the story has gotten crazier and crazier with each passing day for about seven days straight right now. So God yep. only knows what's in store for us this week. Um, and as we look at the bigger picture, 
it does seem as though FTX and Alameda were entangled in all sorts of other crypto investments and even investments and sponsorships outside of crypto. So the ripple effects here are going to be pretty meaningful. No surprise that Mercedes was sponsored by FTX. Oh, it was a tough break for Total Wolf and Lewis Hamilton. Um, I mean, look, we are not going to get into like and the, the Miami way... Heat for that matter. I Just, know the the sports whole, world was very much on the team of, here. of teams that I hate. Uh, sponsored by FTX, very convenient for me. Look, red flags went up for me watching Sam Bankman Freed have like a sort of sponsored content type phone call, like a video phone call with Tom Brady and the exchange back and forth was very stilted. And I was watching those guys. I mean, like Tom Brady is like the Manchurian candidate of celebrities and Bankman Freed is there in like a t-shirt looking totally disheveled. And I was just like, I don't know what's going on here, but I don't trust it. And so I feel validated, but big no, picture. I mean, this, is, this is the problem with I've, we, we've sort of praised and lauded the idea that sort of the idealized social network interaction is group chats with with disappearing messages. But this is one time I rue it because <laughs> uh, I like. Oh well, like I, I don't have receipts, but yes, yeah. I, I have shared your skepticism uh, to say the least. So. What could this change beyond just FTX and the hundreds of thousands? It's it's unclear exactly how many people are going to suffer as, as a result of this fraud. But beyond that isolated case, it does seem like this could reverberate for years to come. And I mean, it's certainly going to become a political issue in Washington. Yeah, I mean, I don't. There may be a a user regulation bit here where people just sort of abandon crypto-based finance sort of in general. I think the shaky part of this is there are no foundations, right? I mean, I, I think that um, Bitcoin is established and not going anywhere. It certainly has not really held up its bargain as a store of value in an inflationary environment, to say the least. But it is like the longest lasting. It has the group of dedicated adherents. Those are folks, the Bitcoin maximalists who think all the other stuff is BS and Bitcoin is the only one true currency. They're looking pretty good right now. Even though Bitcoin's down, they were definitely right that all this altcoin stuff and the crazy yeah, like speculation. Luna, I mean, all of this stuff, I, I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist by any means, but looking at all the alternatives to Bitcoin, like absolutely, I think Bitcoin's a lot more stable and dependable than all of these coins that just seem like schemes like I, I don't know how to put it and maybe i'm wrong i'm sure we've got a lot of listeners who who believe in the power of you know minting all of these random coins um but first of all seems like a market that's going to be impossible to ever effectively regulate and second of all it's not surprising that there's all sorts of underhanded dealing in this world right now yeah i mean it's definitely like just Financial markets, new financial markets do generally have a lot of fraud, right? And that's like that was the case with the stock market. It's been the case in general, and, and regulation does end up coming in. And one of the challenges, just backing up and looking at at like myself from a meta perspective, I can sit here after the fraud was established and say, yeah, I was always kind of suspicious of this guy. It, it never really added up. And people are like, why didn't you write that? It's like, well, because it was just like a feeling, right? Like the fact I didn't write about him or about it is my only receipt, right? It's mm-hmm. the, the, the fact that there aren't receipts is my only sort of evidence here. And that applies to DeFi generally, right? Like the reason why I didn't write or sorry, now I'm confusing them again. Uh, DeFi and CeFi uh, generally 
is because just like at the end of the day, what's the underlying asset? If it's only the belief of the people under it, well, that's subject to like preference cascades where, where everyone suddenly changes their mind all at once. And then everyone's sort of, sort of screwed. And, and you, you have things like counterparty risk. Like if your counterparty, like there's all sorts of things that go into it. I have written in favor of Bitcoin saying that, look, I think this, this one is a real thing. It's established. And I think that's probably still the case. Again, the way that Bitcoin has lost has actually been highly correlated with the stock market. I was wrong. Like, like the, mm-hmm. it, I thought it would retain better value better than it did. But at the end of the day, I still don't think it's going anywhere. It's just a much sort of weaker asset than 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 I sort of w- once thought it was. My real interest all along in this stuff has been products. Like there, there is a uh, you talked about the the Twitter Mastodon thing. There is a blockchain based Twitter type app called Farcaster that has spent tons and tons of time completely abstracting away the blockchain. Like where you go and sign up and yes, you have, there's like a, a, a key you have to, you know, a multi-word password that you have, you have to keep in store, but they're starting from the premise. This has to be as easy to use as a sort of web two app. If this is going to ever going to manifest. And that's definitely much more in line with my views and my beliefs sort of about this. Like, like that aspect matters and in the long run, if Farcaster is something that becomes, you know, a big thing, then you have a real asset, which is people using this network, and that's valuable, upon which value can be minted or whatever. And the, the other big thing about crypto that I've always had a problem with, this conflation, I have written this, this conflation, sorry, I, I know I keep saying I wrote or didn't write this, I, it's because... <laughs> I want to be accountable for what I did or didn't say about this sort of stuff and what, what I got wrong, and what I didn't get wrong. And I, I'm, I'm working on a bigger article today sort of touching on this. I, like, I, I just want to be honest with myself about where I was with this bit. And one of the issues I've had with crypto is this conflation of ownership with usage. And people say, oh, you spend all this time on these social networks and you don't own any of it. It's like, well, yeah, because that's a completely different function. Like ownership is something different then usage, you pay for usage. You might pay with your attention when it comes to ads. You might pay money. Like you pay me money to subscribe to Checkery. You pay us money to, to, to listen to Sharp Tech. And then ownership is a different thing where you put in capital and you take risks and maybe you get a return on that and maybe you don't. Why should those be the same thing? Like people have asked me, oh, why don't you create a Checkery coin? Why don't you like let your members own the upside? It's like, I don't want to do that. Why would why would I want to give that away? The entire point is I took huge risks to get this started and I get to keep the reward and I'm that's not screwing my customers. They are free individuals buying a product that I have for sale and their value that they're getting for their money is they get content that they like and want to pay for. Like it's a much cleaner straightforward relationship and there's just this conflation gets you in trouble. I think that conflation on the crypto side doesn't make sense and is wrong. I think the conflation of good political actions with good business similarly gets you in trouble, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, like the clarity about what you're doing and why is better than we should be demanding companies to be more political. Oh, but only the right politics. And then everyone takes their eye off the ball. The people holding them accountable take their eye off the ball. The people in charge take their eye off the ball. Your incentives get screwed up. And in the worst case scenario, like FTX, you actually commit crimes and you feel justified because you're doing it for the good of the world. Yeah, well, I I think... Sorry, I feel like I'm talking to you rambling a lot just because 
Well, I don't know. <laughs> look, it's an impossible story to wrap our arms around right now because A, it's unfolding in real time, and B, there are just so many different threads and potential implications of, of what we've just learned over the last week or so. I mean, number one, there's probably going to be a great movie to come out of all this at the end of everything. I actually think this is legitimately, and we mentioned this on Dithering, it's a phenomenal movie, in part because... You can mess with audiences' assumptions and expectations, which we saw happen. That's what happened to journalists who covered FTX, mm-hmm. is they just assumed he was the good guy because he did things they agreed with. And it and, turned and by out the way, he was the villain all along. I think a lot of regular people looked at Bankman Freed and FTX and A, were confused by everything that's happening in this space, and B, were suspicious of everything that's happening in this in this space. So it's not like this is some dramatic twist for most people who have been yeah, watching from they afar. They assumed everyone was, was, was like corrupt and fraudulent. Yeah, it's a fair point. I mean, what do you think? I mean, what, what do you think is, is you, know, you don't have to lay out a regulatory plan and we should do X, Y, Z, but what would you support? Well, I'm not sure how much the government can actually do to regulate a lot of what's happening offshore. So I think that is problem number one. And number two, it's not even clear whether the CFTC has control or the SEC, like there's competition over who has jurisdiction over this space. And so there are just a lot of decisions that are going to have to be made. And our, our government's not terribly fluent in some of this like dense technology. So that's a challenge in its own right. Um, so I'm not terribly bullish on like the next steps here, but there is going to be a user regulation, which is people are just gonna, not going to mess with this crap. Right. And maybe that's that is where I am. Maybe that is one of the one of the better outcomes. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, full disclosure, and I, I disclose this on my site. I was not involved in any of the sort of the, the DeFi or CFI stuff, however you want to define it, uh, personally at all. I, again, like my interest is the product bit. And, and where I hope this goes for crypto generally is uh, I don't know the I, – I, I'm not super deep on like Farcaster or whatever. But what I, what I would – what I'm interested in is I don't want Farcaster coins for ownership. I want those for product purposes. And let's have normal shares for ownership. I think mm-hmm. like I think the SEC – People in crypto hate the SEC. They take the current SEC chair. But I think this bit about, like, I have a hard time seeing where coins aren't securities. Like, the, the idea that if the goal is you have a coin for usage, but that coin's also supposed to increase in value as the as the value of the service goes up, like, that, sh- that sounds like a security to me, right? Like, I mean, it's kind of, in that perspective, it's, like, weird that you would use stock. Like, imagine right. you could use Apple stock to use Apple services. It's like, oh, you get a month of <laughs> iCloud if you contribute like one, one stock certificate, right? It's just, it doesn't make any sense. I, I think this conflation has never made sense. And I think from my perspective, this might be a good thing from for my view of crypto, which is I'm interested in it from a product perspective and the financial aspects getting smushed is like, great, let's get people who actually are interested and see this potential value here to mm-hmm. work on that. But that's like that means that crypto is just a feature with other stuff. And, and I think that's probably where it will end up. It doesn't fit up to all the visions and grandeur of the space, you know, particularly like a year ago. But I, I think that's that seems fine to me. This conflation bit has always bugged me and now more than ever. Okay. So final thought before we move on, applying my expertise as a normie. We've talked a lot about how 
AI is this new and exciting technology. And then by the time it's applied, you're not talking about AI, you're talking about algorithms or, you know, in a couple of years, you're just going to be talking about mid journey and, and how we get art for different articles and stuff. And I think some of that will probably be true on the product side and with blockchain, like blockchain is such an impenetrable concept to normal people. It can work if, if you take steps to just make it really user-friendly and, and remove it from some of the jargon that's thrown around by the blockchain evangelists. I'm curious what you think of that. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, this is where I go. Just I want to read the introduction for the docs for Farcaster. It says, quote, Farcaster is a sufficiently decentralized social network. It is an open protocol that can support many clients just like email. Users will always have the freedom to move their social identity between applications, and developers will always have the freedom to build applications with new features on the network. Doesn't say blockchain. Right. Like, like, like the, the idea now, of course, they are creating an app. They're creating a user interface. They want to make it as easy to use as possible. And the idea should be you sign up and use Farcaster and you don't know that at the end of the day, your data and your social network is being written to a blockchain. Exactly. But another developer could come along and say, I don't like Farcaster. I don't like the way they're managing their network. I'm going to build an alternative. And because it's on the blockchain, I instantly get that user's network, all their connections, all those sorts of things. And I can build my version. I think it's going to be better. And I can sort of w- try to win win those folks over. And again, very much in line where w- I think your point is very well made, right? If your marketing involves the word blockchain, you're like – it's, it's a developer an uphill technology. battle. It's a, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a developer technology, right? Like people don't need to know what language they're, they're cozering. They don't need to know which database. Like at the end of the day, it's a database, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it, are, it, is this service using MySQL or is using Postgres? What? Like imagine if you went to uh, – you you came to uh, Passport, right, or Shashekri. It's like sign up for Shashekri, which is written on Postgres. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> what does that have to do with trajectory? Exactly. I just exactly. want to read some content. Well, and look, the utility you're describing with Farcaster and blockchain more generally does make a ton of sense as everyone's life starts to exist at least 50-50 on the internet. And you have all sorts of personal information that it would be useful to port over whenever you want to switch service X and go to service Y, like all of that um, seems like a, a good thing. And it's just going to be, it's going to be a question of making it user-friendly and and bringing it to market in a coherent way for normies. So I hope whoever goes forward, just ask me and I could help guide you down that path. But yeah, it, it might not work. Like it just might not be possible for there. Like maybe you always have to have some sort of centralized entity at the end of the day. It's very possible, but you can at least, and I mean, this is a this is a challenge in general, and this is where I want to hold myself accountable. The narrative of having a blockchain where you could have your data in one place and then it's accessible, you could take it somewhere else. It's very appealing, just like the the overall narrative of crypto about decentralization is very appealing. And there's there's a real sort of trade off. I don't know. It's not a trade-off. Like it gets you in trouble. Narrative can get you in trouble. I think people can both underrate and overrate the power of narrative. At the end of the day, narrative is only useful to the extent it actually results in building something. Mm -hmm. And 
I mean, this is where, you know, just to sort of transition to Twitter, I, I think there's uh, one of the issues is I've said on this podcast, I've said on other podcasts, I've said on, on Checkery, look, Twitter was not a very well-managed company. There's tons of low-hanging fruit. They needed to cut employees, like just not even beyond servicing the debt. Twitter was going to do huge layoffs because like it, it, it's, it was just something that sort of needed to happen. But at the end of the day, like though this whole verification zoo, uh, the, the thing that struck me is Elon Musk and David Sachs and folks talking about, oh, the only reason why media cared about this is sort of status and we're giving power to the people. I think that's something there is some shred of truth there. I mean, I think for for someone who's very popular, the people who actually need verification probably don't care about verification, right? Right. But there is some aspect where you're just some small little journalist. No one knows who you are, but hey, you got a black shirt. Like, hey, that's pretty cool. It's, 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 it's nice. And But this narrative took hold in their heads about the media, which again, I just spent 30 minutes criticizing the media. Like, I think that's a valid thing to do. But- became overwhelming in their heads where they're making these very rapid uh what's the what's the pejorative term I'm looking for rash uh very <laughs> rash decisions about this without doing any thinking through it right it's like they were just as captured by the narrative they had in their heads about why verification about exists yeah yeah and and my defense of Elon Musk, we, we like we had that podcast in person right and we were sitting you know sitting on the couch talking about it and and I'm like look you have to look at him. You can look at him from a relative basis or an absolute basis. The relative amount of, you know, just on an absolute term of stuff he says, most of it's BS. A lot of but nonsense, yes. if you look at it from absolute basis, Tesla exists. SpaceX ex- exists. And, you know, and, and his role in that is very, very large. And if you – so from that, I will give him the benefit of the doubt for that reason. But those exist because they were built. There's something you there's substantive things in the real world that exist. Mm-hmm. And if Musk is going to succeed with Twitter, and I've I think become fairly pessimistic, lots of people are, are, are like, oh look, the media is overstating it. The media is anti-Musk, you know, they really care about Twitter. All that's true, but that is a narrative that is true that exists. At the, the end of the day, though, has power. Yeah. Well, the, it well, but I, I I actually I think people get too hung up on it. The way that Elon Musk proves people wrong about Twitter is by building a better Twitter. And too many of the decisions to date seem driven by proving his narratives right as opposed to building a better Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I look at it and to the extent the narrative is driving away advertisers and making everyone unhappy and pessimistic about what's next for the company that then creates more urgency to to seek out some of these quick fix solutions. And the way they've rolled out the verification stuff in particular has been an absolute mess. And it's tricky for me because a lot of the media coverage has framed everything in the most negative light possible and made this seem so much more dramatic and problematic than it necessarily was, um, depending on what exactly we're talking about here. But just in general, as a reflex, I got a little bit skeptical of the story that was being told about Twitter in the first few weeks of Musk's tenure. At the same time, I look up now, and I'm not sure Twitter has done anything 
that's worked over the last couple of weeks. And I do think they got weirdly preoccupied with the idea that people want to level the playing field and have a blue check and just like the politics around all of that and the messaging was so strange and it turned Twitter into like a really chaotic landscape for the last 10 days or so. And so looking ahead, you mentioned that you're not bullish on on what this turns into. Why is that? Because I, I am starting to feel the same way based solely on like the level of daily chaos and the lack of any sort of measurable progress in the last couple of weeks. Well, to must credit, like <laughs> it sounds stupid, but at least something's happening, right? There, like yeah. it, there was a criticism that Twitter just couldn't do anything, but it's one of those things where you can be right in your critique, but that doesn't mean you agree with the solution that ended up presenting itself. And this is where, like I said on this podcast, I said on other podcasts, Twitter needed someone to move fast and break things, right? And so it's very fair for people to around and say, look, 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 look what's going on. This is not working out well. You were wrong. And it's like, well, granted, I'm, try- like, I'm trying to take a middle road here where, yes, stuff need to be broken, but you didn't need to do this, right? And maybe the answer is like, maybe maybe you're seeking perfection where perfection was not to be found. My pushback to that, though, is it seems pretty clear that, you know, Musk spent the last several months trying to fight to not buy Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. That time could have been spent actually formulating a plan. And then coming in, I think there's a world where you come in you do lay off half the company. You have a much better idea of what parts of the company you're going to focus on, which parts not. You'll be doing due diligence. And you have a clear route for sort of like, like, yes, I get the bit about throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks. But ideally, you're just still sort of aiming for a certain part of the wall, right? right. Like, like it, And what worries me, though, is the degree to which Musk and the people advising him seem so gripped by their narrative view of the world, right? This mm-hmm. is where they have a view that Twitter is just and this whole thing is about blue checks and, 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 and like, that's not the problem with Twitter. The problem with Twitter, like, I think for example, verification could be like very useful. I think a subscription product could be useful. I think like one of the ironies is I actually found some of the Twitter blue features pretty useful, particularly the part where they absorb nuzzle, which was this, you know, this service that, that, that shows you all the links that people you followed were tweeting. But why do I have to have a check to access that? Right. Like, like why is that all getting conflated together? I don't have a check. And as someone who unfortunately continues to use Twitter every waking day of my life and will have to continue using it for NBA news and tech news and China news and who knows what other podcasts will launch over the next couple of months, but I'm going to be using it every day. And I would pay a premium for features that improve my experience and give me more ability to sort of calibrate what I'm seeing on there every day. And it just seems like they haven't really thrown their weight behind any of those ideas and instead chose to focus on the checks, which has turned into like a complete disaster. I'll read this note we got from Ryan. He said, can you guys revisit that emailers take that paying for verification is like buying a backstage pass to a concert? Seems like that one may have been misjudged a bit. And uh, it's certainly not the way it played out over the last week or so. I will say that email he's referencing, what made sense to me is 
the, the emailer explained Twitter's value as the one social media platform that allows you to interact with celebrities and public officials and intellectuals. Like it is a, a meeting ground. I think Mark Cuban had a point on this one where he's like, look, Elon, like you're focused on what people who want to write tweets, right? They want to be able to write tweets that Mark Cuban can see. But at the end of the day, most people on Twitter are consuming stuff. And like, what about my experience? It, it like, there's this view of Twitter. It feels like where it's, it's this status hungers games. And that's absolutely a part of it. It's certainly the part that Elon Musk is exposed to the most, like, like, you know, insults and bots, but is that like, is that all that the business is, right? There, there seems to be no, we, we were carping for a long time. Can we get a CEO or, you know, a director that uses Twitter and uses Twitter regularly? And while Elon Musk uses Twitter all the time, and it was probably <laughs> a fair criticism to say, like, how does he use Twitter? What value is he getting out of Twitter? Is Elon Musk getting information from Twitter? Yeah. I, I, that seems doubtful, right? Uh, and that is what worries me is, his beliefs about what Twitter is and what Twitter isn't doesn't seem aligned to what I think Twitter is or isn't. And you don't, and this is where, again, I criticize people in Sam Bankman Freed, who's like, well, his political views align with me. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. In this case, it's not that my political views aligned with Elon Musk. I mean, who knows what his political views are? That was also all over the <laughs> yeah. place. I'm not going to let you make that mistake of a blanket statement of yeah, agreement yeah. with Elon no, Musk. No, 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 no. <laughs> absolutely. What I agreed with, what I agreed with is I agreed that Twitter needed changes. Yeah. And that in that case, I probably gave too much birth to Musk in general when it was re- sitting right there to say, look, has a guy who's been fighting to not acquire Twitter for the past few months and at, supposedly is also running these other companies, is is he actually in any sort of position to come in and start making wild, wild changes in the first week? And I should have said that. I should have raised that criticism, but I fell into the exact same trap where, hey, I agree stuff needs to change on Twitter, so let's give this guy the benefit of the doubt when there were very valid reasons to question him earlier, and I take accountability for that. So what are the immediate challenges for Twitter going forward other than advertisers and No, and that debt? is the challenge. Okay. No, the, the the challenge is I put a link to something uh, you know is this advertising thing is is there an activist thing here like like cuz the I I've, I've one of my little hobby horses has been uh I, I said Spotify one of the reasons Spotify got themselves in trouble with the Joe Rogan thing is Spotify first like hey free speech and I'm like Look, you're, I, you know, I appreciate you Scandinavian folks, but in the U.S., in the popular media, you're not getting a free pass for that. And this is just a pure analysis, not saying yeah. good or bad. It used to be, you know, Twitter a decade ago come and say, look, we're the free speech wing of the free speech party. And everyone's like, oh, back off. Like, like once you drop that, it's like, no, you, like, you can't challenge a company because you're anti-free speech. That has flipped, right? Like where saying, just saying blanket free speech, that brings a... Uh, an assumption of your pro trolls, your pro, you know, people acting badly online, abuse, all these sorts of things. And so when I said that in the context of Spotify, I, I, it was just analysis. Like, look, if you're a tech CEO, you can't, you, this isn't a get out of jail free card. Mm-hmm. And so when I wrote about Elon Musk a couple weeks ago, I'm like, look, this makes sense. I went to his thread that maybe advertisers were already pulling back before he even got there. 
And a few people did push back to me in email, and I think they were probably right. That look, no, like it, it. I don't know. If there's any, and I actually heard reporting from I think Peter Kafka that 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 there wasn't some activist group like this really happened in the last couple of weeks where advertisers are like, holy cow, what's going on here? Uh, yeah, you know. And the problem is, no one needs Twitter. The advertisers don't need Twitter. It's a crappy advertising platform. And by the way, right now, ads are pretty cheap on Meta. Ads are pretty cheap on <laughs> Snap. Right? Like, just. Let's back off. Let's see what happens. Let's let it settle. Let's put our ads somewhere else for now. The problem is that Twitter needs to pay its bills. Like Twitter needs to pay its bills. They need to pay its debt. And like, I don't understand why, if you're an advertiser, you would want to be on Twitter right now. Yeah. But I can definitely understand why Twitter needs advertisers to be on Twitter right now. That's a big problem. Yeah. Well, and and this is why the narrative is powerful. If you're in an ad supported field, it doesn't matter what you are, what you are perceived to be is more important to your bottom line. And what Twitter is perceived to be right now is like a place full of chaos. Yeah, no, I think that, that that's a it's not just narrative, though. And this is the point I wrote about the advertiser thing in context of narrative where like, hey, the narrative is that Elon Musk would be bad for things like we're not in narrative land anymore. We're in factual land. It is factually bad over the last week to have been a brand on Twitter because oh, yeah. why? Because people could come on with blue checks, imitate your brand and say stupid stuff, right? Like everyone's passing around the picture of Mario giving people the finger, right? right? It, it, it's, so not it's not even that. It's fact. It, it is fact, but also Twitter's brand right now has become so toxic that some of these companies can score points by saying we're taking our ads off Twitter. And to your point, they're not really losing that much utility from the Twitter advertising business. So all around, things are not looking great about three weeks into Musk's time as, you know, Twitter owner. And I I don't know, maybe, maybe they can pull off a miracle here, but I've been shocked by how, how incompetent this has looked at various points. No, I, I I have been, I've been too. And like I said, I, I, I'm going to write an article today. It's always risky to pre-announce it, but it should come up before this, where I really want to go back and examine myself because I should have been, like you said, it was an easy thing to write to say, this guy is not is going to come in, is not going to have a plan. I should have stated that advertiser case more clearly, where if chaos happens, they have no motivation to say X, Y, Z. And I feel like I've been hanging out in narrative land a little bit too much personally. So what I want to write is like, look, I, one of my problems with Musk is he's too much in narrative land and not enough in building land. Mm-hmm. And that's, and I recognize that I'm going to critique that because I've been making the same mistake. Okay. And like, and I think the advertising thing is a, is, is a perfect example. Like it's just a fact that being an advertiser on Twitter this week is bad. And it, it like, yes, people are losing their minds and people go too far but just because people flip out and lose their minds doesn't mean there's not directional truth there. And there is facts to sort of back it up. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the the meta angle is is kind of the 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 other piece here. Um did we was it like if meta owned Twitter, like things would so be much better. That um, was gonna be my final question <laughs> because this take is out there every day on my new tech Twitter that I follow. And Matthew asks, wouldn't now be a great time for Meta to go after Twitter and the more public slash broadcast social media market? 
There are some people who want Meta to spin up its own alternative to Twitter. It sounds like Matthew is maybe asking whether they should just go buy Twitter. Um, but I mean, do you think that's at all feasible over the next couple of years? Like, I'm not sure whether the juice is worth the squeeze with Meta. I mean, they're also spending like 12 to $15 million a year on VR. So who knows where their priorities are. But, but what's your reaction to that general talking point? So I don't think they'll ever be allowed to buy Twitter for antitrust reasons. Good point. Uh, which is honestly a shame because meta owning Twitter would be great. Like Twitter and Twitter, it would be valuable for harvesting signal. And then you could use that signal in like Instagram. Right. So meta could use Twitter to know that Andrew is very interested in NBA and increasingly interested in tech. And then in Instagram, when you're in a different frame of mind, it's a better medium for advertising. Then they could monetize that signal by showing you ads that are interesting to you. It's, it's It would be a very sort of, natural pairing i mean way back when twitter bought mopal i was very excited about this idea look twitter needs twitter is a i've been arguing for years twitter is a very poor place to put advertisements but it's a very great place to harvest signal about what people are interested in and Mm. so my hope with the mopal acquisition which is an ad network that was in apps is that twitter could get signal from twitter and then show relevant ads in other apps um and that never really worked out well. I think Twitter is not very good at executing. And also now ATT sort of would have killed that that opportunity because it's a third, you know, third party sort of thing. But Facebook has the inventory with Instagram, right? And so uh, that that but again, I don't think it'd ever be allowed to happen. Now, what Facebook does have is they do have a, a network to get you bootstrapped, right? So you can start with knowing who you're following. But the question is where would that manifest? They want to build a Twitter alternative. Like they like who do you want? You don't like this is my whole point. No one wants to actually make another Twitter. Like, do you do right. you want responsibility for that mess? Like, do you really? Um, that said, there's one interesting bit about Meta's layoffs. VR, lots of layoffs. Facebook, huh. lots of layoffs. Instagram, lots of layoffs. WhatsApp, almost no layoffs. Now, it, it, WhatsApp is very interesting in general. They talked about in the last call that WhatsApp usage in the U.S. is growing a ton, which has always been the one market WhatsApp has not penetrated. You know, I think like I think the group chat thing probably has something to do with it. It's by far the best group chat app, uh, you know, and I think it's very compelling in that regard. What's interesting about WhatsApp, at least in the U.S., is you open that and you spend all your time on the chat app. There is this status thing. Right. Like, which I I think in other countries is used more often. Like you can post stuff there. I think that would be an interesting play for meta is to real is like, again, WhatsApp is most it's a textual app. That's like the sort of frame of mind. It's a communication app. Always wanted Twitter to shift from sort of like being the broadcast to having a really fleshed out DM product because yeah. that would be very valuable. Instead, DMs move to iMessage or move to WhatsApp, where it might be. Could WhatsApp go from a really fleshed out DM product, like direct message chat product, to having a sort of public broadcast timeline bit? Probably not. But if I were Meta wanting to sort of capitalize on this, that's that's where I would what I would be thinking about. Very interesting. I will say for my part, I begrudgingly joined WhatsApp when you and I started working together and I did not expect to like it nearly as much as I have. It's a really useful messaging service. I was on Signal as a lawyer, which itself is pretty useful, but WhatsApp 
there are just a bunch of different things you can do on there that makes it really easy to to create groups and communicate all day in a very clean, sort of frictionless way. Um, so I am all for any sort of expansion of that particular universe. It's it's one of the few tech products in modern life that is just like all good. Like I haven't experienced any downside from WhatsApp. So yeah, I mean, there's has been a lot of controversies around misinformation spreading on WhatsApp and it's it, because and it's encrypted. So like you can't, you don't know what's necessarily, you know, no one can see what's being seen X, Y, Z. And, you know, there's been like, especially in India and Brazil, there've been controversies about this. So just to sort of, you know, disclose that. And the thing to remember is, you know, Elon Musk keeps tweeting that Twitter usage is way up. And I believe him like, like, you know, that's, there's a reason why people drive really slowly by a car crash because it's really compelling and interesting. Uh, what's going to be interesting is, is he going to go on the, you, you have to subscribe like, like hmm. to access Twitter period. And it's a lower price and you just have to pay. Like if he feels besieged by advertisers, well, the way to not need advertisers is to pump up subscription volume but I don't think you're going to pump up subscriptions just by adding features. Like it, 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 you need to put an actual paywall in front of it, but then do you just kill Twitter by doing that? Right. Like, yeah. so to the extent an alternative takes off, I think the, the order of operations here is, you know, I think Twitter has to sort of die. And mm. as long as Twitter is around, it's going to retain the Twitter use cases, uh, that may involve, you know, the back end may go through restructuring, you know, bankruptcy. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But well, yeah. and look, we're never signing up as a society for a second Twitter. It's just not going to happen. We all wound up on Twitter like the frog in boiling water and it's turned into what it's turned into. And we've all come too far to turn back now. But if Twitter dies, no company is going to develop like a, an identical product that everyone feels great about using because we all will just use our time better in that scenario. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, this is one of the things I've been thinking about. Like, have I been relatively cavalier about Twitter in part because I'm so. I think it's been bad, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> I think most of tech like. Regardless, tech exists. I think, you know, first and foremost, that's my view of things. We need to figure out a way forward. We're never going back. But I do think that Twitter, and I'm very conflicted because for me, it's the most valuable service. Like I, I get so much information from it, but there's, it's, Twitter's like crack cocaine or something, right? <laughs> or like meth, right? It is like I mean, a drug, yeah. And there, there's a couple, we'll put these in the show notes. There's a couple of good articles, um, one both by uh, Jaron O'Neill in, in the uh, New York Times and another one in the Financial Times, really talking about what Twitter does to people and this very sort of like ironic detachment and sarcasm and mockery. Like that's the currency, that's the currency of the realm. Hmm. And I think people who love Twitter, like you, like me, it's also a unbelievable information source it really is there's nothing that has ever compared to it like like what you can get what you can learn i know all the twitter search operators inside and out because i, I can unearth stuff like crazy do like there's there's stuff on twitter that is not anywhere else and when i'm optimistic about someone taking over twitter and fixing it i'm thinking about that part of it and thinking like you know there's so much here to leverage and unlock it'd be cool to see someone do it unfortunately I think Elon Musk is an adoptee of the other side of Twitter, the cynical part of Twitter, the, 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 the put down side of Twitter, the yeah. Hunger Games part of Twitter. And 
that's I think that's bad. I think it's been bad for society. I do think it's been bad for the media. And it's bad for the media, not because the media has blue check marks. It's bad for the media because there's no allowance for questioning stuff, right? If you're on Twitter, you have to snap to your position and you have to snap to your position of being completely anti-Elon or completely pro-Elon or, or, or whatever the, the, the issue du jour is. And I think that's bad. Like, like, like we've talked about the context of COVID, right? Like there's so much uncertainty and Twitter is terrible for uncertainty. I would say it's not correct to say there's no allowance for questioning stuff. But for most people, the potential costs of that questioning outweigh any potential benefits. And so the public square tends to take on a bunch of uniform opinions and it just becomes sort of exhausting. And, and there's less diversity of opinion and, and thought. And I mean, you go back to like the blogosphere in 2008 versus where we are now. There were so many more perspectives expressed throughout media than what we have now. And I do think Twitter and the, that sort of echo chamber plays a role in catalyzing that uniformity. Yeah, and this is another reason why I need to do some self-reflection because it always bothered me that Musk talked about Twitter as the town square. It's like, no, that's the internet, right? The internet is what gives everyone a voice. Twitter is a service on the internet and to say that Twitter is the only place you can have a voice is like people saying that, you know, company XYZ is a monopolist because you have, you know, like that's where customers are. No, like it's not, you can get your voice out there through ways other than Twitter. Like I mm-hmm. don't tweet about tech stuff basically hardly ever, but I still get my voice out there about tech stuff via my site, via my podcast, because it's the internet. You can hang out a shingle. People can type a URL into the browser and they can go somewhere else. Just like, like now, is it the case that Twitter is dominant? If you want more reach, if you want more sort of like retweets and, and, and like, can you have more influence potentially if you're, if you're putting that on Twitter, that's definitely, that's probable. I would say that, that, that that's probably the case. I decided it was not worth it for me from a mental health perspective. And I don't think it's worth it for me from a business perspective. Like, why would I give away my stuff on Twitter when I could charge for it, you know, somewhere else. But he has that same mindset that I pushed back on, on, on some of these sort of antitrust folks that are like, no, you know, Google's the only place. Well, no, it's not the only place. Are they dominant? Yes. But you need to understand that dominance comes from user choice, not from them controlling, you know, the internet wires like a cable mm-hmm. company. And saying t- Twitter is the town square, that, that, that was a red flag that I missed. Like that's, I mean, it, it was one of those things, it kind of occurred to me, but I should have, I should have been, I should have jumped on that sooner. Well, a lot of challenges lay ahead for Elon Musk. I'm rooting for a WhatsApp-centric future, even though you roasted me a week ago for being on WhatsApp for six months and still not having a profile picture. Not clear to me why anyone needs a profile picture on WhatsApp, but um, we could address do a, that. Do you have a profile? I mean, oh, you do have one on Twitter, so I guess uh, exactly. Uh, Look, we'll tackle this in a future episode. We've already gone long. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed the meandering conversation through two ongoing disasters between Twitter and FTX, and we got a lot of questions that we'll hit later in the week. But for now, Ben. Um, I'm sorry about the Red Bull loss tonight, but the first Mercedes victory of the season, the first time God saved the King has ever been played on an F1 podium. What a day, what a weekend in Brazil. So 
I hope you go back and watch some highlights and just savor everything we got to experience with the Brazilian Grand Prix. Yeah, well, I don't want to run this episode off a track, so I will <laughs> okay. leave it at that. Uh, again, you need the video. A lot of disgust in Ben's eyes there. All right, we'll be back later this week. 